0: begin to decrease. All right, when this happens, that's very good. In between, they're unlikely to increase in terms of being propelled by, by, by policy rates. Unlikely. And now, that brings me to my next little pet hate, you'll permit me. This business that um, Fed forwards pricing 30% chance of increases in interest rates. What does that mean? It's an utterly meaningless mm. statement. In six months or eight months or whatever is the time period, interest rates will either go up Well, they won't go up. They will not go up in the probability of 30%. You know, people mix continuously what probability means, which is repeated events over some total events give you the probability. The Fed is not going to increase several times, and of then 30% will go up and the other 70% will not go up. Meaningless statement. It means absolutely nothing.
1: Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I feel much I, better now. Yeah, I'm glad. You, I'm glad you do. <laughs> and I'm kind of on board with you, to be fair. Um, but let's look at numbers then. So the job numbers are still strong. Commodity prices are going up, and I mean it's kind of interesting because we're seeing gold price now getting back to two thousand. It was below ni- close to going below nineteen hundred just not so long ago. Um, so we're starting to see maybe safe haven moves. Markets are starting to weaken. Is this maybe the sign that? I know, I know, Andrew. You look at specific companies and specific sectors, but if we're trying to take a broader view, are we now saying, okay, well, now the markets are getting a bit toppy? I know I addressed that to Andrew, but I'll start with you, Sam, on that.
2: No, I think there's no doubt about it. That's, uh, I mean, when you reprice the value of money over a certain amount of time, the risky assets have to reprice, and they've been stubbornly stuck up based on you know ten years of quantitative easing and bad bad practices, and uh, low risk perception, and the risk is coming back, so. Whether you're looking at credit uh, implications on some of, as mentioned, real estate, or you're looking at future pricing of earnings, risk has to be repriced, and um, that's going to happen one way or the other.
0: Uh, Nitzin, one of my favorite, uh, I don't want to call it topic, assets is the Aussie, and the Aussie has been laid wasted in the last month and a half. Okay, despite the fact, as you say, uh, commodity prices are going up, the Chinese economy is, well, sort of flat, to positively, possibly a little bit better. And of course, Aussie interest rates are not going to come down anytime soon. American interest rates possibly will stay stable, therefore the differentials are there. And the Aussie tumbled down from something like 68 to 63. Why? Well, I have no idea why. (laughs) I mean, It it doesn't make any sense because the Aussie is very sensitive to commodity prices in China. And strictly speaking, if we are right, it should be stronger and it ain't. Well, you know... Who am I going to blame?
1: But is that not the vic- is that not, are they not just the victims of the US dollar strength and the fact that the long dated yields have been s- strengthening that? Dollar? Oh
0: Nijan, let's be let's be a little bit careful here. You know the old thing? It is not that the Aussie is weak, it's that the US dollar is strong. And why is the US dollar strong? Well, because the Aussie is weak. Ta-da! I mean we we are chasing literally our own tails here. <laughs>
1: But, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. Again, I was going to say U.S. dollar is <laughs> stronger against all currencies. So, yeah. well, that's that's a little bit better. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't just going to target, and that's what I was trying to allude to. It was the Aussie wasn't necessarily weak against maybe some of the other currencies. It was just really more against the U.S. dollar, yeah. and we take it against the other currencies. I think it's not too bad. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because, like I said, I mean, when you look at these commodity prices, I do think there is safe haven. But now, if we're saying that the markets are toppy. I think we're really talking about the Western markets. Andrew just touched on the point that China's starting to look at like it's flat. Maybe, maybe there's sense of positive news coming through, but we're all not yet convinced. Does that mean some of that money starts flowing back into this region? Um, I'll start with you, Andrew. Gosh.
0: You know, look, the, the answer has to be no. Okay, not in terms of China is uninvestable, that's nonsense. Okay, it is a matter of relative preferences. And uh, whilst, uh, for example, the property sector in in China still doesn't show any sign of of recovery incidentally, one of my absolutely most favorite indexes in China, these are the prices of uh, uh, new property in the 70 major and minor Chinese cities. I think it's something like the 19th month it has been shrinking. Well, wow! I mean, talk about a trend. The trend is downwards after all this time as opposed to upwards. And I'm not surprised if there is a degree of reluctance, plus the fact that we are still waiting for the 30 to 31 initiatives and the money that will go into those initiatives that has been announced about two months ago. And uh, there still is nothing. The People's Bank of China has been flat to a commodity. You know, the interest rates have been cut. They have not increased and liquidity has been, uh, let's say, relaxed. So the monetary policy is in the right direction. Now, what I want to hear, and we've heard about last week, some good news that they will be looking at a fiscal deficit, which is about 30% of GDP, which is minute in comparison of what it could be, could be expanded. Well, that's good news. Now, let's see how this is going to happen. I'm not giving advice to the Chinese government, for God's sakes. I'm only responding to what I read in my newspaper, okay?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's been rumoured, but not yet necessarily confirmed, although I think most people would hope to come and see it through. Mm. Um, what about you, Sam? I mean, with that news of deficit, with, I mean, Beijing and Shanghai starting to show strength in the property sector. I mean, it's the two cities I know, but, and it is a very, very limited number out of 70 cities. Um, but are these now maybe signs that we can start seeing some of the money flow come back this side? I mean, if
2: you're looking regionally, I think the trend is definitely still because of risk perception It's still going to be an outflow uh, to have a strong bounce. You will have to need confidence, liquidity and long term prospect. And I think at the moment, in terms of valuation, I'm probably coming to start to see long term valuation, but you don't have the other factors. So I'm not saying you don't you want to have specific opportunities. But if you look regionally, uh, the thing hasn't repriced yet. You see, the in currency Malaysia is at uh, you know year, multi years low. Seeing on the same currency across the region, so I see on the yuan, the flow until there is some proper repricing of risk, uh, you're still going to see the, this this flow going on.
1: So, Andrew touched on uh, property in China. Can I want to bring it a little bit more closer to home um, and talk about the Hong Kong because there's massive calls at the moment for all. Um, of the cooling measures to be eased, um, while I don't necessarily, I'm not really to give my views, but well I don't necessarily agree that all of them should be eased, because I think it should be targeted towards letting locals, first-time buyers, still get on the property market. Um, Will that kind of acts as some sort of spark and will that start lifting developers which could start lifting the Hang Seng Index and, and you know, maybe that's a way of playing it?
0: Well, here is where I'm going to justify the reason why I'm the Nobel Prize winner every year, <laughs> okay, with incredibly insightful aspects. Where well, poor John Lee. Well, yes, rumoured that he's going to remove some of the restrictions and to the extent that we will be with a big happy face, it will be better if the restrictions concerns the purchases by locals as opposed to purchase by foreigners because let's not forget 10 years ago the danger was the property in Hong Kong is being bought out by the mainlanders. Okay, this sounds a little bit uh, almost racistly and uh, uh, let's say negatively disposed of the Greater Bay Area but it will make some sense if to say we will keep in place money coming from the outside and let's see if we can do something for the locals because after all uh, this is what uh johnson's remit is okay so the answer is, is it took me five minutes to tell you yes let's hope it leaves some of the local restrictions
2: <laughs> what about you sir? well i think you know, the market should be normalized but at the same time it should be normal it shouldn't be normalized just because prices are coming down because i think that was the whole point we want more supply and want pricing to be more affordable at the same time, I think it would, normalising the market, would be more transparent, the flow coming back. So you could actually see repricing as well, with not necessarily the upside. So, yeah, those measures have been long-lived. I don't think if you lift them, uh, the source of these uh, big spikes was actually speculation. I don't think it's going to come back given the cost of funding. But at the same time, I don't think it should be done just because the pricing is going down.
3: Mm.
0: And the, the likelihood of mainlanders having massively burned themselves in the Chinese market, flooding into Hong Kong on the expectation that uh, prices will rise forever is perhaps uh, a little bit uh, misjudged or misguided.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. I don't think Mm. uh, you're going to see a massive massive amount of mainlanders come in. Um, But again, for me, I think it's target. Let's have first-time homebuyers. And everyone talks about the stamp duty, but what about the down payment? I mean, I think the biggest... Uh, barrier for a lot of locals is actually on secondary market having to put down 50% for properties over a certain amount em- of value. And that's quite a substantial amount of money. So if they can actually start by just reducing that, I think that gets at least some sort of hope on the f- uh, local, for the locals to get in. And that will lift some, some of the market, would you not think? Uh, Sam, why don't you start? Well,
2: it's, pr- it's pretty clear. If you could converge the, the secondary and the primary market, it will m- very, very quickly increase the supply of, them, of, the, uh, of the flats available to the, the, local, the local people. And that would certainly, you know, probably move the average pricing down and be very beneficial. So I absolutely agree on that one.
0: Mm. Here, here I'm talking out of ignorance because you do have several knobs, okay, which you can twiddle. And uh, I have not yet seen some kind of a study saying that if you twiddle the down payment or if you twiddle uh, the interest rate, which one of the two has the greater impact on, on the market. In other words, it is not a market that that's a good idea. Let's twiddle the down payment, but leave the interest rate alone. That's going to have a much bigger impact than just the interest rates. The answer is, is I don't know. And perhaps, as I said, I might be talking out of ignorance. And there is some information out there indicating the differentiality of the impact of those policy initiatives.
1: So I only have 30 seconds left, unfortunately. Which I was going to talk about Belton Road, but unfortunately we just don't have the time. So given that we've only got 30 seconds left, um, is there anything we should look at over the next week?
2: I'll give 15 seconds to each of you. Sam? I think you should look at the US market. I think they're on the verge of repricing, and uh, with especially with a political factor coming in, I think you should be very careful.
0: Elections in Argentina. uh, Just borrowed uh, a few billion from China and uh, the potential new president is an avid and rabid anti-Chinese one. This
1: is absolutely fabulous. I really, really enjoy that. I love irony. (laughs) All right. Um, like I said, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I don't know where it went. That was uh, just quite a very good discussion, I guess. So I'd like to thank Andrew Ferris, uh, CEO of e Advisory, and Samuel Favre, CEO of Mandarin Capital, for coming in. Thank you, guys. Um, still to come, in your money, Carolyn Wright will be joined by Gillian Howard, co-founder of the Digital Art Fair, to discuss the economics of digital art. Plus, Deanna Musina, Deputy Chief Economist at AMP Australia, will bring us a view from Australia. Quick look at the markets. The ASX200 is now down 1% at 6,909. The Nikkei is down 312 points at 31,117. The Kospi is down 30 points at 2,385. The Hang Seng Index futures is currently up 4 points at 17,294. And the S&P 500 futures is down 12 points at 4,291 the weather be mainly cloudy with a few showers and maximum temperature will be around 27 degrees. Moderate to fresh easterly winds becoming north to northeasterly later, and slightly cooler at night. Temperatures will fall to a minimum of around 22 degrees. The current temperature is 26 degrees and the relative humidity is at 85%. say 30 and now the news with Carol Musgrave.
3: Egyptian state media say the Rafah border crossing into Gaza will be open for several hours today to allow the delivery of urgently needed aid. Dr. Mike Ryan from the World Health Organization welcomed the decision but said the operation needed to be long-term with security guarantees for aid organizations and their staff.
1: It's great to have a start. It's fantastic that we're beginning, but we then need to take this beyond that, beyond the gesture. And we need to make sure that a corridor is a corridor, humanitarian assistance needs to move every day. Two and a half million people need assistance. 20 trucks is a drop in the ocean of need right now in Gaza.
3: Palestinian media say the head of Hamas' security forces has been killed as Israel continues its airstrikes on Gaza. Members of Jihad Mahasin's family are also reported to have died in the attack. The BBC's Sebastian Asher reports.
4: Amid a continuing flurry of diplomatic activity, Israel has carried on with its bombing campaign against Hamas in Gaza. The Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has once again said that his country is engaged in a long war, as he reiterated his description of Hamas as the new Nazis. The Israeli army has been providing lists of the senior Hamas figures it's killed since the group mounted its attack on Israel. According to Palestinian media, Jihad Mahaisen, who control the security forces in Gaza, has joined their number along with members of his family. The widow of one of the founders of Hamas, Abdulaziz Al-Rantisi, is also reported to have been killed
3: overnight. Since the Hamas attack on Israel on October the 7th that killed at least 1,400 Israelis, more than 3,700 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza by Israeli airstrikes. Canada has withdrawn 41 diplomats from India. It comes a month after the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau alleged India was involved in the murder in Canada of a Sikh activist who was a Canadian citizen. This report from the BBC's Anbarasan Etty Rajan.
4: An infuriated Indian government termed the accusation absurd and asked Ottawa's mission in Delhi to reduce its number of diplomats ostensibly to bring it in line with the Indian diplomatic presence in Canada. The Canadian Foreign Minister, Melanie Jolie, said India's action was unreasonable and unprecedented and clearly violated the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. She said 21 diplomats were still in India, but the withdrawal meant Canada would have to limit its services in the country due to a shortage of staff.
3: A former lawyer for Donald Trump has pleaded guilty to six election subversion charges in a plea deal. Sidney Powell was a Trump campaign attorney. The BBC's Shingai Nyoka reports from Washington. The day before she was due to stand trial, Sidney Powell pled guilty to six misdemeanor charges related to attempting to access voting machines in Coffee County in Georgia. She'd been charged with attempting to tamper with the machines to prove that Donald Trump had won the presidential vote, part of a wider conspiracy that has since been disproved. As part of her plea deal, she received six years probation, one for each charge, and she will be fined $6, U.S. dollars Significantly, she's a former member of Mr Trump's legal team, who will now be a state witness against him. Powell is the second person in the group of 19 to have taken a plea deal. U.S. media are reporting that Jim Jordan has suspended his bid to be the new Speaker of the House of Representatives after failing to gain enough support from fellow Republicans. He's already twice failed to secure a majority. More from the BBC's Anthony Zurcher.
5: Mr. Jordan is not officially abandoning his attempt to win the Speaker's gavel, but with calls for the House to approve aid packages to Ukraine and Israel and a possible government shutdown in November looming, pressure was building to at least find a temporary way to end the congressional logjam. Voting to grant Acting Speaker Patrick McHenry expanded authority in the chamber until January could be that solution. Already, however, some Republicans are objecting, virtually guaranteeing that Democrats also will have to support the move for it to
2: succeed.
3: A man in Spain is going to prison for repeatedly faking a heart attack to get out of paying for restaurant meals. The 50-year-old man, who's originally from Lithuania, was arrested 20 times in the last year. The BBC's Phoebe Hobson has the story. We've all gasped at the bill, but faking a heart attack to get out of paying for a meal is perhaps melodramatic. But that's what an unnamed Lithuanian man in Spain did on multiple occasions until his con act wore thin. He became known to the police and they then circulated his photo around the city of Alicante, where he liked to dine. He was arrested 20 times, but that didn't stop him trying one more time. According to the owner of the last restaurant, he entered dressed in smart clothes, ordered a seafood paella and two alcoholic drinks. The total bill came to nearly $40, and to avoid paying, he clutched his chest and threw himself on the floor. Despite two hours of acting, the restaurant recognised him and alerted the police. And that's the news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3.
1: A few minutes in your money, Carolyn Wright will be speaking with Gillian Howard, co-founder of the Digital Art Fair, about the economics of digital art. And to close the show for the week, we'll get a view from Australia with Diana Mussina, Deputy Chief Economist of AMP Australia. But first, China's new home prices fell for the third straight month in September, official data showed, dashing hopes of a turnaround in demand during the traditionally peak home buying period. Hong Kong and Beijing have pledged 15 billion yuan to create an investment platform targeting projects under the Belt and Road plan, including those focused on developing infrastructure and transitioning to renewable energy sources. The US economy's strength and continued tight labor markets could require still tougher borrowing conditions to control inflation, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said, though rising market interest rates could make action by the central bank itself less necessary. The number of Americans filing new claims for unemployment benefits fell to a nine-month low last week, indicating that strong job growth persisted in October, as the labour market remains tight. The Digital Art Fair is now underway at the K-11 Museum, and the Money Talk team took the opportunity to go along and find out a bit more about digital art, including how much money some people were already making, while other newer artists... the event aren't quite so sure about how to go about doing that. Here's our very own Stephen Philby speaking with Phyllis Sham from the Digital Art Fair, Hannah Cho, Managing Director of Art Collective, Hyperfuturism, and artist Bianca Che.
5: I just walked in the lobby of the digital art fair to be greeted by this amazing piece of digital art. It's huge though, so I wouldn't find a room in my apartment for it to go on. But it's just like, I think the digital nature of it just bring out so much vibrancy. It's a corner in Hong Kong. It's got a couple of different colored buildings. And it's got a tram and a neon sign a traffic light and then it looks like it's raining oh yes it's actually moving i've mean, only just noticed that and you can see the shadows moving there's like feathers going down someone crossing the road but there's just so many colors in it and you know if it was just a picture i don't think you'd get the luminosity from it so i think that's one of the benefits digital art give you well, we've just walked in to be greeted by some smaller section pictures of the big one that we saw in the um, entrance. So this one's by the same artist.
4: Yes. So uh, the, this is like a puzzle of the big one. Yeah. And, you know, every single digital art frame, they have the individual section of the big frame, and this is called Take Your Time, Jonathan J. Lee's work. It is a collaboration with the Oriental Watch company that like collaborating the old and new Hong Kong together. So as you can see, there are tram, they are like old buildings of Hong Kong. So the artists actually sketch from the original photos, old photos in Hong Kong, then they redo a new digital frame in there. So it's one frame, then has two different puzzle. Yeah. So how many
5: copies of each do you sell?
4: We only sell like 10 edition of it. Each one? So it is yeah. like quite, uh you know, like not mass production because like, you know, digital art and like NFT, we only have produced 10 yeah. edition, unfortunately. If you want to keep it, you need to be quick because I...
5: Oh, okay. So you've sold some already then. <laughs> yeah. And you have to buy the whole lot? Or can you buy the individual okay. pieces yeah, yeah, of individual, the puzzle? Individual, okay. Individual,
4: yeah, Okay. So
6: what
5: sort of price range would you be Talking about say for the individual ones.
4: So individual will be eighteen thousand for the traditional art frame plus one digital frame.
5: Okay. Yeah. I I think that's more manageable than I was expecting. Actually, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you're finding they're really popular. Are most people buying them as a whole or the individual pieces?
4: Uh, Because to be honest, we just started like one or two hours ago. But I believe these kind of artwork will be easier for the people in Hong Kong for the storage and more transferable, I guess. Well, like digital art, basically.
5: Still having a look around. And what we've seen up to now is been very much on Hong Kong. But now it looks like we're looking at something very different. Please, can you introduce yourself?
6: Hi, I'm Hannah Cho. I'm the managing director of an art collective called Hyperfuturism. Okay.
5: Do you have a retail store in Hong Kong or is it mostly online?
6: No, we do not. We're actually um, a global institute, I guess. We represent 55 artists from 26 different countries. Okay. And we're not a gallery, we're actually a label. So we promote our artists and then we're not really on the retail side of things.
5: That's really interesting. And now maybe you give us a a tour of a couple of the pictures and tell us more about them. This is fascinating, but I can't actually place what it is.
6: So this piece, there are two two pieces actually. um, It's from an artist named Michael Tan. He's Chinese-Australian based in Berlin. He is actually showing, he's inspired by nature and showing the different movements of, uh, not movements, but the way plants grow, the, mm-hmm. how, they, how they go through the life cycles of growth is what he's representing here. This particular piece is from a artist named Studio Brush. He's based in Stockholm and that picture is showing a memory from his childhood growing up in Copenhagen yeah. at a on a chalk cliff where he used to collect chalk and draw on the sidewalk with them, And he's gone back to this place recently as an adult and mm. had his first date with his current girlfriend. And he tried to capture that feeling that of moment. being there. With her, yes. Yeah,
5: that, that's incredible. If you
6: look at this piece on an iPad, the colors look quite different.
5: Okay, so we're taking a look on so, the iPad. You see? Oh, that's very different colors. It's much bluer on the screen, isn't it? Yes,
6: and we're trying to tone it down because I think this is a more accurate depiction of how the artist created it.
5: Um, (laughs) And how many copies of that would you sell?
6: This is a one of one.
5: Oh, one of one. And actually, I think I saw that on the label, but I didn't quite know what it meant. So only one person will be able to own that image.
6: Exactly, so he will not be selling any other versions of this. Yeah.
5: And you've got that guaranteed with the NFT and a certificate and things?
6: Exactly. So yeah. this particular piece is on Foundation, yeah. which is a, an NFT platform that he's minted on. And the other piece is on Super. My name is Bianca Tse. I'm born and raised in Hong Kong.
7: I study in PolyU and visual communication. I've never been an artist before, but I was an art director for advertising agencies in Hong Kong for more than 20 years. I started this project out of personal interest because during my childhood I was uh, from a very broke family and I very feel very relevant to uh, topics about poverty and of course I, I'm rooted in Hong Kong I, I have always been fascinated by the history of the Kallum City.
5: So that's your passion and purpose yeah. and why you moved into this field, so yeah. you could get that passion and purpose across to others.
7: Yes, yeah. with new AI technology, I can recreate and make this place live again because the Wall City was demolished 30 years ago. Not that many people have seen it or experienced it, they have heard of it. So. Combined with real stories, real documentary photos or research and my personal experience that I put a lot in a lot of uh, the works, I created this page. Actually I It's a showreel of a lot of poses that I created in my page. Each of them has a very interesting background and story of it. Colombo City is such a complicated, dystopian complex. It was a city within a city, so a lot of things is going on. It was also the most uh, populated place on Earth. In this dirty and chaotic place, I want people to still have the hope and still aim to the sky. That's why I created uh, like one of the subjects I talk about is the children on the rooftop. They might be living in the toughest uh, environment, but they will have fun on the rooftop. They will Mm. enjoy the sky. They will look at the plane flying from the Kaita airport. I'm so new to this. I have never sold or buy any of my work yet. Um, you think
5: that's going to be quite difficult because you're attached to them?
7: I want someone to teach me how these things work because I'm a very new baby artist. Uh, if someone appreciates it and wants to make it a collection, I'm very happy to talk about it. But I need some learning from it. I'm learning from everyone. In yeah, I was going to say,
5: this must be a good yeah. place to network and find yeah. a mentor or even mentors. Yeah, but and
7: NFT is such a new thing, I, yeah. I, I, I'm too old for that. <laughs> I, I, ah, I need to learn. I need to learn <laughs> what it is and uh, how, how these art
5: Thank you so much for talking to us. It's really
8: interesting.
1: In Your Money Today, Carolyn Wright takes a look at the the economics of digital art. Good morning, Carolyn.
8: Good morning. As you just heard, the team has gone out and about taking a look at the Digital Art Fair, which is on until October 23rd at the K11 Art and Cultural Centre at the K11 Museum. I'm joined by by Gillian Howard, co-founder of the Digital Art Fair, to find out more about investment in the sector. Thank you for joining me, Gillian. Thank you for having me. Now, first off, I want to ask you a very general question. What actually counts as digital art?
9: Oh, wow, that question is good. Um, Digital art is actually covered quite a lot of different things, including... including installation, uh, anything, actually anything related to technology. You're talking about video art, uh, anything with lights, because like you're using other sort of algorithm, uh, digital art as NFTs, of course you guys have heard about, and also a lot of like Photoshop photography, you know what I mean? Like anything that is like after effect, anything with like a 3D and AR, they're all under the digital art umbrella. Okay, so there's all sorts of things in fact.
8: How big is the market for these kind of works of digital art now?
9: Oh wow, that's a very good question as well. Um- you know what? Like in 2021, we saw a massive uh, um, boom of the digital art market, and uh, until this year, we see that like we probably encounter about 10% of the whole contemporary art market. So uh, it's still it's quite prominent considering how long the art history has been uh, for the I don't know hundreds of years, right? So well, yeah, we it's, it's growing really really fast. 10% of the whole contemporary art market.
8: Absolutely, you're right. You know, traditional art has been around for thousands of years, and, and digital art
9: barely—you know—decades, exactly. basically.
8: Yes. So, are you expecting it to grow in future, do you think? Or do you think that sort of 10% is where it might stick? Or, yeah, where's absolutely, it
9: going? Absolutely, absolutely. So, like, some of the artists that like, we feature at the fair, that, you know, we when we first started, they were just, you know, just coming out as, like, emerging artists. And today, like, it, it's one of the artists, for example, that was featured at the fair is Dimitri. And he has one of the work called Wigner. It's an AI artwork. And it was sold for $6 million US dollar in a Sotheby's auction last couple of months before. And then there was also Hops making like headlines and they're young artists are selling work that's like over 50 Ethereum that's equivalent to half a million Hong Kong dollars as left as a new artist so I think the I mean for for the new artists it's a really really good price but also for the art market is seeing a very strong adaption of how digital art is is moving and trending in the in the collectors world and it's really been taken very seriously when people are willing yeah, to spend such a large amounts of money
8: So. What should people know about getting involved in digital art and how that kind of compares
9: to buying a traditional piece of art? I mean, there is really no difference in buying a traditional art compared to digital art. For example, like you've got to understand the market first. Right? like you don't go buy a house without researching about the area, and uh, and also like the artist, uh, uh, is he going to be? Is he, is there real? Really going into it, art? like a real artist that like has been supported by different areas, for example, galleries. Are they supported by the community? Uh, and also, of course, uh, like, I, the aesthetic. You got to like it and you, you believe in it. And uh, I I think there's no much di- not much difference between buying the art and, and, and international art. Absolutely, I think it's very very similar.
8: And what about the difference, say, between buying a piece of art just because you love what it looks like, compared to buying a piece of art because you think it might appreciate in value?
9: It, it, it is a different point of view because if you do want to buy for investment, you really need to look at the track record and you got support in the, uh, in the industry. Uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, like this, this type of, uh, the, the reputation of the artist matters. And, and, the, and the auction houses and galleries are experts in identifying them. Are they gonna be a prominent artist in the future? And why is that? So if you do want to look at investment, definitely do look at the provenance, either the auction house, museum, galleries. I, I think that's very, very important.
8: And where else can people go to experience digital art? Obviously the digital art fair is, is a key event here, yeah. but what sort of places elsewhere can they see it?
9: Um, and, and naturally, there are quite a few museums now, actually, acquire quite a few pieces of digital art, including MoMA, Ledmark, uh, uh there are a few places, a new museum coming up, called X Museum, uh, there is... The, actually, digital art is not that new, to be honest, so they are already existed in different museums, and for galleries why there were quite a few of them, including London, Hong Kong is also quite prominent as well. Tycoon actually has quite a few really amazing shows, Uh, featuring digital art as well fantastic well it's been wonderful to speak to
8: you i hope you have a great event that's julian howard co-founder of the digital art fair thank you
9: thank you so much
1: in the final part of the show we get a view from australia from diana messina deputy chief economist of amp australia good morning diana Good morning. So, um, we've had labour numbers come out this week and uh, they seem to be a little bit weaker than expectations, um, although they were somewhat mixed. So, do we now think that the uh, rate hikes are done?
10: You can sort of take from the report what you want. You can point to the weakness in headline jobs growth, uh, which showed that jobs were only up by about 7,000 people in September and say, well, obviously, that's that's pretty weak. Uh, we need to be generating about 37,000 jobs in Australia every month just to keep the unemployment rate unchanged. But then at the same time, you could say the unemployment rate decreased from 3.7 to 3.6%, which is still around a 48-year low for Australia. So, <laughs> you can read it a number of ways. Uh, I think that it's, it was actually a bit of a stronger jobs report because I have been anticipating the unemployment rate to go up and it has kind of been going sideways. So that to me signals that the Reserve Bank will probably see this as a report that shows that there's still a lot of tightness in the labour market and that could lead to a wages breakout. And that does worry me when I'm thinking about the risk of another rate rise in Australia. I think that there is still a large risk of another interest rate increase before the end of this year.
1: Okay, I'm trying to make sense of these numbers. You said that you need 37,000 more jobs, uh, 37,000 increase in employment to keep unemployment rate Mm. flat. There seems to be Mm. strong population growth and yet the unemployment went down Mm -hmm. to 3.6%. So what part (laughs) am I missing over here?
10: Yeah, it's it. It was a very confusing jobs report. the The reason that the unemployment rate fell is because the participation rate, which is the share of people in the labor force um, that that are either working or looking for work, uh, as a share of the population, that went down quite significantly. So Australia has had a record level of participation at about sixty seven percent, which means that sixty seven percent of people are either employed or looking for work or therefore unemployed, as the share of the working age population, whereas that went down from 67 to 66.7 in September. So that 0.3 percentage point decline in the participation rate allowed the unemployment rate to fall. When you have less people participating, you don't need as many jobs created to keep the unemployment rate unchanged. If we didn't get that fall in the participation rate in September, then the unemployment rate would have increased to 3.9% rather than declining to 3.6%.
1: And do we know why the decline in participation rate? Is that retirees or is that just um, the trend that's global where young people are deciding they want to enjoy their lives for a while and not work and take some time off? Um, do, is, do we it, get down a, to those granular it's good, levels?
10: It's a good question. The, um, the Bureau of Statistics said uh, they didn't really say specifically why why this happened they just said that more people moved from being unemployed to not in the labor force they completely left the labor force when i look at the breakdown of why people are not in the labor force the majority of people either did not look for work in that month or that they are retired 65 and over but um we didn't actually get the data for september and so I, I don't know the exact reason for September, but generally speaking, it's, it's either people deciding not to look for work, which could mean that they're a discouraged job seeker. Maybe they have been looking for work for a while and couldn't find any work or that they just have left the labor force for reasons like they're retired. But to me, it's probably more of a signal of uh, a discouraged job seeker normally when it, the labour market softens you do tend to see a decline in the participation rate because people leave the workforce when when they can't find work and the opposite happens in a booming labour market like we've had in the last two years where the participation rate's gone to a record high because there's so much demand for jobs people want to be employed and it's it's easy to find work
1: so maybe that's the first indication that maybe there will be a softening in the labour market going forward if you, you know if we're starting to see that decline in uh, participation rate.
10: Well, I do think that we will still see a softening in the labour market because when you look at other leading indicators of jobs growth, so things like job vacancies, job advertisements, uh, business hiring intentions, they have all been pointing down for a number of months, but they do tend to lead jobs growth and the unemployment rate. So in the next six to 12 months, I still think we will see the unemployment rate increase. It's probably more a question of how far the unemployment rate will increase. If we just get a bit of an increase in the unemployment rate, and it doesn't put too much downward pressure on wages growth, then that would be concerning for the Reserve Bank.
1: And then you've got this strong population growth. Um, So again, I mean, that means to me that there's a lot of working age population that will be increasing through this population growth. So they also need to be absorbed into the job market, wouldn't they?
10: That's right. Every month we're getting about an additional 55,000 working age people into the labour force that's very high. Before the pandemic, it was running at about 25,000. Uh, that's why we need to see you know, a, a lot of jobs created every month it, to keep the unemployment rate unchanged, assuming that there's no you know, major changes to the participation rate. And that also um, leads me to believe that the unemployment rate will probably move higher from here. I think that by the middle of next year, we'll have an unemployment rate closer to four and a half percent. It's at 3.7. It's at 3.6% at the moment.
1: And you you touched on earlier about uh, wage growth as well. Um, So I I do see the central bank looking at the wage growth numbers and they probably want to call that down. Um, But again, if you start saying that unemployment starts rising, would wage growth then be capped uh, maybe just for another couple of months? We might see some strong wage growth and after that it starts being capped.
10: Yeah, so Australia has, I think, a bit of a different wage setting system compared to a lot of other comparable economies, we tend to have a bit of inertia in our wage setting systems. And when I say inertia, I mean that there can be quite large delays from when uh, things happen to when wages growth adjusts because we have a large share of our population on award wages, you know, which is set once a year and on minimum wages and also on what's called enterprise bargaining agreements, which are sort of like awards, but as a collective for a specific workplace and those are all based upon what the Fair Work Commission decides once a year in June. And and a lot of those groups are also influenced by public sector wage decisions and those caps may only be reviewed once every few years. So what we've seen in the past year is that public sector wages caps have been increased. Those are still flowing through. We had a big increase to minimum and award wages in June, and those are still flowing through to enterprise bargaining agreements. And what we've seen in the past few weeks is some lift in those enterprise bargaining agreements wage rates. So the share of the population that's actually on an individual agreement that can negotiate their their income is probably close to about 35 or 40 percent. So it's not the major share. And that is the group that's more influenced by what happens to the unemployment rate, because if it's harder to find work, then that is the group that tends to get lower wages growth. But because we've had all these other parts of, of, of the labor market have, have higher wages growth, that's why we've actually seen wages growth be a little bit higher compared to you know where, 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 where we saw wages growth last year, and that's the risk for the RBA at, at the moment. <clears throat>
1: Okay. Well, unfortunately, time seems to really be going today. It's just uh, flown by. Uh, so that's all we have time for. So I'd like to thank you for coming in. So thank you, Diana. That was Diana Mussina. Thank Deputy- you so much. You're welcome. Um, it's Deanna Mussina, Deputy Chief Economist of AMP Australia.